Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. And this week is really broken down into two different sections. In the first section, we'll talk about what is the ecosystem of biotech development and a topic that we've touched on a few times before. How can emerging interests with a company that has some expertise in navigating the business and science side really help to propelled a small business forward. And it really is a lesson in entrepreneurialism, but also modern innovation and the way that it happens and the way in which scientists and business people are colliding to ensure the success of small business ventures. This is a really important part. But on the other side of this is the innovation around Alzheimer's disease. And it's been a little bit controversial and difficult to understand. So our guest today provides some insight into where are the current therapies and how are the trials and validations different for Alzheimer's than they are for potentially other therapies. A number of companies have brought several possible candidates to the fore, yet it's challenging to think about the rules we need to see to test for does it really work? Alzheimer's has a number of challenges with how you identify it and who really suffers from it and does it really work or does it really not because you're looking at someone in cognitive decline. So how do the new therapies have to be looked at through a slightly different lens and how do clinical trials have to be structured and thought of in maybe a little bit different way? To shed light on this, we're speaking with Dr. Lean Kawas. She's the Managing General Partner at Propel Biopartners. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Kawas. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah, this is a really interesting, different approach than we normally do on the podcast in that you have a much bigger view of the, of the industry and the field and what's going on. And there's some important questions and some things that are going on that I'd really like to tackle. So what's happening currently with Propel Biopartners and what exactly does your company do? Yeah, Kevin. So we are an investment firm. We launched over a year ago. And the I think what's unique about Propel is we are a group of people that have extensive experience to start companies. We're operationally very strong from specialized in the healthcare industry as well investment and business building. And we really started Propel with a premise that we can support companies more than just with capital, right? There's capital out there. Maybe today it's harder to get to. But I think from my experience as an entrepreneur who started the company, took it all the way through public offering and beyond, getting specialized access to a network was one of the things that helped me become successful. And that's what we're trying to provide with Propel, really propel the mission and vision of entrepreneurs and companies that we invest in, whether they're private or public, because we invest in both sides, private companies as well as public companies. Okay. So, because this is something that's always been really interesting to me and in how this works. So 
there's a lot of good science out there. Lots of startups with excellent ideas, good dreams, lots of academics with some ideas, myself included. But what are we missing that, that guidance from someone like you could really help us with? I appreciate that you started your question with there's a lot of good ideas out there. And what makes a good idea into a successful company or venture is execution and innovation around execution. And we're looking for entrepreneurs, companies that have great science. Of course, it always starts with the science in our industry. But at the same time, we're looking for people who have innovative approach for how to accelerate drug development with a clear focus on patient. You know, we look at a lot of, there's a lot of redundancies in our industry. There's a lot of traditional ways that people run programs and in, in the life science industry. But now with the technology and connectivity that we see, there's different ways that things can be done. Of course, it has to follow science and logical product development, but we're, we're, we're not really excited about traditional way of corporate development, traditional drug development, because there's a lot of exciting science, but also a lot of ex exciting execution strategies. So execution is very important. It's something that we spend a lot of time after we build convection around the thesis for the science, the team, execution, and plans around it, which what makes, you know, successful companies successful. Okay. So you provide some of this execution strategy to help people maybe pull off the, the business side that the, maybe that scientists aren't necessarily conditioned to, to do, but also do you provide some scientific oversight? We're not providing traditional oversight. We're trying to provide a space where talented entrepreneurs are able to share their ideas, and we just ask questions and bounce ideas off of them. We provide network, we provide ideas, we provide you know a safe place that innovators come to us and share their ideas. And you know, part of what we look for people who are op open to feedback, bullish about their ideas, but they understand that they can do it on their own, and how they're able to cultivate and network within their organization and outside of their organization to bring forward the best solutions. And, and one thing I want to highlight is mindsets are very important. We have to be in, a, in this you know, time, in this era, we have to have a growth mindset, approach problems with a beginner's mindset, and lastly, build your organization with an intention behind how you hire and, and how you build your companies. This like traditional corporate structure top down really limits innovation and acceleration of product development in life science. It's a multidisciplinary industry. Let's bring all the talent in one place to bring the best solution forward. Yeah, but is, is that traditional way of doing this, is it so entrenched that it's difficult to change or are people actually shifting the way that innovation is happening and the way that companies are, the way investors are, are, are helping to support it. I mean, Kevin, I'm sure from your place and conversations that you've had, change and innovation, when something could have a significant and huge impact, it's never easy. And you know, 
I think that's something that drives us as a team. And, and that's why I enjoy my new position as an investor and, and a person who's running a fund that is trying to support different companies at different stages. We're looking to have a meaningful impact on our industries. And it's not only science. You know, if it was only science, we've, as you said, a lot of scientists all over the world in different academic labs would have been able in a more efficient way to move things forward. But it, it's the whole innovative corporate development, corporate strategy, drug development strategy. And, you know, I, the thing with the biotech is there's another industry, the tech industry. We can take a lot of the learnings from there and models and apply it in a way that fits our industry. So it's not easy, but it's definitely exciting. And we are, I could feel it. Like there is a momentum that's happening where we will see significant changes in our industry in the next decade or so. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think as somebody who's an academic scientist who's been do, studying biotechnology since he was 10, I, I tell my students, I say, I need you to get up to speed on biotech and really think about potential careers there no matter how far you want to go, if it's PhD or bachelor's, whatever, because there will be a, a chair for you to sit down in if you're creative and want to work hard. It's the next big tech wave, in my opinion. And do you kind of see that being the same thing? I do think that there are some learnings. I don't think that we would be a me too industry like the tech, but there is a lot of learnings that we can take from that industry and how they enabled growth without losing the innovative Yes, magic at, at every stage. I, I really love a lot of interviews around the different, you know, Steve Jobs and, and CEOs for Apple. It's, you know, the idea that it's the biggest startup. And I don't think it's the biggest startup. They just have a very unique corporate structure, network structure that we are trying to promote as part of our, you know, investment thesis because it's, it gives you intentionality in how you build your team. But at the same time, allowing this ecosystem and environment for innovation and growth, we are starting and we will see in the biotech industry. Well, all this is really good. I, I was excited to have you on because I didn't want to just do an infomercial for Propel Biopartners. I was really excited because I've read a lot of what you've written about clinical trials and recruitment for Alzheimer's disease, and especially some of the thoughts that you might have on the recent happenings around Alzheimer's, because it's a topic we haven't touched on much here. But yet in the last month or so, we've seen, or last, well, shouldn't say that, last year, we've seen some real push for release of several potential therapies. And I'd really like to touch on that a little bit. So what is currently happening with respect to Alzheimer's disease and some of these new monoclonal antibody-directed therapeutics? Yeah, I mean, this is a hypothesis, the A-beta amyloid hypothesis has been a hypothesis that's been pursued for close to 20 years right now. And as we know, Alzheimer's is a very tough to see disease. There's multiple underlying pathologies. We don't fully understand how it starts and, you know, why do some people develop Alzheimer's versus others don't. But we absolutely know that the A-beta amyloid protein plaques and different forms of A-beta are part of the disease presentation and pathology. So we cannot deny that it's part of the pathology. But the because there has been a lot of failures, I think Biogen did a really good job in putting together two programs that clearly show the ability to reduce the biomarkers 
there is some clinical benefit, although, you know, not very clear. Clinical development, by the way, I just want to say this to the audience. It's never black and white. I think a lot of people expect that there's going to be a very clear answer if a drug works or not. It's never the case. It's a cumulative effort. You start with early stage clinical development and you continue to build evidence if the drugs work or not. Well, one big part of this might be that Alzheimer's is a little bit of a slippery issue to diagnose because isn't isn't most of the diagnosis postmortem? It used to be that, yes. I mean, confirmation. But then now there's a lot of imaging techniques that confirms the A-beta amyloid or plaque accumulation in the brain. And, you know, we've, we've had significant advancement in the PET imaging, although the problem is it's not reimbursed. Uh, yet. So that's another challenge of access to full diagnosis for Alzheimer's disease, which is something I think right now with the approval of two drugs, there should be some path towards reimbursement for some of the imaging modalities uh, that confirms the diagnosis for Alzheimer's disease. So do we have the tools to diagnose it? Yes, we do. Is it accessible to everyone? No, because it's not reimbursed yet. But I think with the two drugs that have been approved, provided accelerated approval, nobody can deny that there is a clear uh, removal of a biomarker that we know that is part of the presentation of the disease. To say that, okay, it doesn't have that major clinical benefit I think I heard Billy Dunn one time give a presentation and kind of like give a rationale behind why as an industry we should be pushing towards approval of these monoclonal antibodies. A-beta amyloid, Kevin, starts accumulating in the brain 10 to 12 years before we start seeing any type of clinical presentation of Alzheimer's disease. To ask a company to run a 10-year clinical trial is kind of like crazy, right? But what the FDA did is they give accelerated approval to Biogen and they ask them that you have nine years to give us confidence that there is clear clinical benefit from this approach. And nine years, and I thought it was very smart that the, the FDA gave nine years because then they can truly test the hypothesis if a beta amyloid, once it's cleared from the brain, over the same time course where these proteins starts to aggregate to start seeing clinical benefit. And on top of that, which is something that you cannot quantify in a clinical trial because of the endpoints there. For in my point of view, the, a lot of the endpoints in, in the way that we test Alzheimer's is ancient and there's a clear need for new ways that we test Alzheimer's. But in the real world, we're going to be able to clearly measure delays in you know, any type of moving the patients into memory unit, how much, how much time are they able to be independent? From my interaction with Alzheimer's patients, it was very interesting. They're so excited that they're able to make their coffee, they read the newspaper, versus when they go to get tested in clinical trials, they're being asked about the date, the day, the... There's a lot of things that don't matter. And I do believe that allowing more drugs to be approved and tested in the real world for Alzheimer's could lead to significant understanding for us as a whole, you know, industry. You know, maybe I should have asked this first, but, you know, how bad of a problem is Alzheimer's disease? And is it something that is becoming more common? Alzheimer's disease is the most expensive disease 
on our systems. Like I think it cost over $300 billion to take care of Alzheimer's patients. Of course, there's, it's a complex disease. There's multiple type of dementias, but it's a really expensive disease. And we don't think about the indirect cost. Once a family is impacted by Alzheimer's, it's not only the patients, Kevin. It's the caregiver who's going to give up their jobs to start caring for Alzheimer's for their family member. The cost, the additional cost around taking care of Alzheimer's, the indirect cost, a lot of people think about it as the direct cost. There's significant indirect cost on our society. That's why I say Alzheimer's is never a single person disease. It's a, it's a unit. It's either the patient and their caregiver or multiple people that are impacted by the disease. So it's, it's a very expensive disease. The last time I looked at it, it was 5.6 million diagnosed patients in the U.S. And by the way, that's not everyone because there's not a lot of tools that physicians can use to manage Alzheimer's. And a lot of them don't diagnose Alzheimer's because it's a, it's a scary diagnosis and they try to delay the news to the patients as much as possible. Um, but I think with these drugs, Adjihelm, although Adjihelm was commercially obviously did not have a successful outcome, hopefully Isai and Biogen will lead a successful commercialization effort with Lakembi and Lily, albeit delay, delayed in their approval with their drug donamamab, hopefully they're also going to get approval and help us as a society, as a scientific community, as an industry, understand Alzheimer's and the different phenotype and genotypes of Alzheimer's patients. And, you know, the first, I always say this, the first cancer drug that was approved was really, you know, had significant side effects, didn't work well. But once we saw approvals, and understanding of the real-world impact of these drugs, cancer, therapeutic, and drug development improved significantly. So I hope that we see a similar trend for Alzheimer's disease. Well, when you talk about cancer, you know, there isn't one thing. Cancers have different etiology. They have different treatments. It's very, very different. Is Alzheimer's kind of the same thing, that it really is a heterogeneous spectrum of different disorders that tend to, to share some commonalities like this accumulation of beta amyloid? Absolutely. Alzheimer's is as complex, if not more complex, than cancer or oncology. There's different genotypes. There's different, like the level of these protein accumulation, A, beta, tau, the different regions of the brain that are being impacted. There's cardiovascular, cardiovascular impact, you know, the apple E genes that have different type of disease progression, gender, the type of, like, it's even more complex because I think cancer or oncology is, doesn't discriminate, I guess, based on the background of, of a patient. But in Alzheimer's, even the, I guess, the, the background of the patient the way that this Alzheimer's presents itself for someone who is, let's say, NASA scientist is very different than someone who used different domains in their brain, in their career and day-to-day -day activity. So the way that they actually show the disease and the way that they progress will be very, very different, which makes the way to test for improvement in clinical studies much more challenging than cancer. Because cancer, it's the endpoints most of the time are quantitative. 
you know, the tumor size, cell count, it's very much easier to quantify compared to recovery in, in the cognitive network. The, the other big impediment with Alzheimer's to me seems to be that the animal models that have been developed present some data, but they're difficult or don't translate well to humans that you can make, you know, knock out beta amyloid or knock out tau mice that they still behave, still have similar behaviors with their memory skills and other types of deficits that we might anticipate with Alzheimer's. Is that true? Or how does that just really speed the lack of understanding of tr how what we see in animals translate to humans? Yeah, that's a very good point, Kevin, which is cognitive network different type of memories like humans we have executive that's something that is animals don't have or we cannot we're not able to measure so translation is a big challenge here you know i, I always say the all of these type of maze that we test we, we're not testing it in the same way for alzheimer's patients so it's really hard to translate you know i worked in a company Ethereum, and we've developed different type of quantitative biomarkers that are more translatable, like EEG and P300. But there's always, you know, as part of the translational challenge is in humans and clinical testing, there, there's more variables around human testing. In animals, when you are looking at these, it's a very uniform environment that has less impact on these type of myomarkers. And that's why, you know, running clinical trials in an, in executing on clinical trials is a very important part of successful outcome in central nervous system diseases, Alzheimer's and other depression, and Parkinson's. So which makes the translation even more challenging. Well, we're speaking with Dr. Lean Kawas. She's the managing general partner of Propel Biopartners. And we're speaking a little bit about entrepreneurialism, but we're also speaking about What's happening with Alzheimer's therapeutics? It's a disease that seems to be becoming increasingly more prevalent, both in its enhanced surveillance and diagnosis, as well as folks living a little longer and more likely to suffer from some degree of neurodegenerative disease. This is Talking Biotech Podcast by Calabra, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Calabra the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Calabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Calabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on Calabra's Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Lean Kawas. She's a managing general partner with Propel Biopartners and someone who's been keeping a finger on the pulse of developments in Alzheimer's disease and its associated therapeutics. And over the last year or so, we've seen a number of blips on the radar screen that, you know, here we are looking at this disease, which is devastating, has tremendous costs for society as well as families, yet there are no therapies available a few therapies that are available, at least prior to the recent spate of releases. And so could you tell us a little bit about the specific therapies that have emerged and some of the controversies around them and, and where really where they stand right now? 
Yes. So Agen last year, they had the approval of Aduhelm, which, you know, there's three main drugs right now. Aduhelm from Biogen, Kembi, which is a drug that was co-developed by SI and Biogen, and then Dona, which is a drug that is being developed by Lily. They all target the same type of pathology, A-beta amyloid, protein aggregation in the brain. Like it's a more complex, like I don't want to go into the details, but this is one of the main pathologies or presentation of Alzheimer's disease. Aduhelm was approved based on accelerated approval, based on changes in the plaques, A-beta plaques. They give the antibody, it clears the plaques. They looked at imaging, there's consistent and dose-dependent and time-dependent change or reduction in the plaques. It was approved. There was a big pushback from everyone that it doesn't have the safety profile or the efficacy profile, which, I, you know, I think that any drug that gets approved has side effects. And I think that Biogen did a really good job in testing the drug in a large number of patients to give comfort around the safe use of the product. We can talk about the endpoints after I explain. B, which is the same type of product, antibody, targets the plaques, show time and, and dose-dependent change or reduction in the plaques in the brain. So these are similar in that they're monoclonal antibodies. And are they targeting the same type of epitope or what makes them different? Different. They're, they're slightly different within this, with, you know, within the pathway, neurofilaments or basically filaments or, or plaques or it's a, it's a very complicated, I would say, path for how we get from the start of the pathology up to plaques. But it's a continuum. So if you impact one component of this pathway, you will see an overall reduction in, in, in the protein and the different types of protein and ultimately plaque accumulation in the brain. So they are different. They're not the same product. They don't target the same proteins within the continuum, but ultimately they lead to reduction in A-beta amyloid that is very clear with PET imaging. Yeah. So the PET imaging is a big part of this that you can, we mentioned earlier, that this used to be post-mortem, but it's really this positron emission tomography that allows you to see these plaques in the brain. And does that, but, you know, does that also, you have a decrease in the number of plaques or the amount of plaque, but does that coincide with a reversal of cognitive decline or better symptomology of dementia? That's the big debate, Kevin, is... We've seen a clear reduction in A-beta plaques in the brain in these two cases, as well as Dona, like Lily's drug Dona. And since this, this type of mechanism of action has been pursued for, you know, a couple of decades, people are resisting the idea that we, we removed the plaques. It never led to improvement in clinical. Why is the FDA at this moment allowing the approval of these drugs? I think we have way more data coming out of these two trials. You know, there's tau, PET imaging to tau, which is another protein pathology in Alzheimer's that is consistent. It's not like one off. There is consistent, slight improvement in the different cognitive or not necessarily just cognition, clinical endpoint, clinical domain endpoint. And it is 
I think there's there's clear evidence. When I looked at the data, I actually listened closely to the ADCOM committee. It's not groundbreaking, the data, but there is consistent and clear effect across different areas, whether it's biomarkers, functional, and, and cognition. And these endpoints are very hard. You know, a lot of people don't understand clinical trials, especially for Alzheimer's. Those are not easy to measure. And I thought the FDA did a really good strategy with saying, okay, we're not going to give them full-blown approval. We're going to give them accelerated approval. We're going to give them nine years to give us confidence that this actually leads to improved in the quality of life, improve in the clinical endpoint. And cognition, again, I want to highlight cognition changes in every Alzheimer's patient is very different because we have a very different base in our brain cognitive network when the disease starts. So I do think that the FDA did the right thing, getting these drugs into the market. Unfortunately, the pricing was a little bit, you know, also, um, I don't think it was perfect from Biogen with their first drug. Hopefully with Lakembi, they will do better, but it will help us. I want to tell everyone who is like saying this, you know, the FDA is, has not showed the same type of rigor. I think they did. That They care about two things, safety and efficacy. They've done a lot of work studying the safety of these two drugs. Efficacy, we have an indication that these drugs work. We need now to think outside of the box. We need to start testing these drugs in the real world and get evidence from the real world that there is clinical benefit in the way, in the real way that is important for the patients, not just scales, you know, going into the clinic and testing what's the date of the day, what's the season that we're in, where are you? real ways that patients care about and, and real ways to test for the economical impact of these treatments on our economy and our society. Well, when you talk about endpoints for Alzheimer's disease clinical trials, you know, what is it specifically that makes them especially challenging? Is it because of the different presentations of disease or the advanced age of patients with comorbidities that may influence them? Or you know, what, what is it that makes it particularly challenging? I think two things, actually multiple, three. I'm going to highlight three things. One, the cognition is a, such a big definition, topic. You will see cognitive decline and dementia and Alzheimer's disease and other dementia presents in different ways and, and depends on the type of profession. There's people that are able to compensate for some of the con cognitive decline, different regions in our brain develop differently based on our day-to-day -day life, the languages that we speak, the environment, if you're living in the city versus in the suburbs versus, you know, in, 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 in a farm. So it's already a very heterogeneous baseline of cognition. And the way that we advance is also very heterogeneous. So it's, it's, very, it's already a hard disease to predict progression. And the rates of progression is very different for each patient. And then the second part are the scales that are being used currently in the clinic. A lot of them are very old. You know, when you say cognition, the gold standard right now for how to test for cognition is ERAS-COG. You know, it's a 
tool or a questionnaire that clinical developer or drug developer use to measure in, in a uniform way, right? They're trying to uniform, to use it in a, you know, it's a very old scale. Like it was developed in 1984. You know, I keep saying this. I'm going to keep saying, I was born in 1985. I, I, can, I, I can't live with the idea that we're still using tools in the clinic that are older than me when we have all of this advancement in technology and much more advanced understanding of the disease. And then third part is execution. When you're testing for cognition, it's not a tangible, it's not like blood pressure, it's not the size of the tumor. These are heavily impacted with the environment. If I come, you know, if you, if you go through a very stressful experience, let's say that you're stuck in traffic for two hours, you get into the clinic. Do you think you're going to test in the same way when a patient in another clinic walked to the clinic, five-minute walk, pleasant, you know, whether they're having their cup of tea or a cup of coffee? It's very different. So there's also a lot of that covariance or variability in the environment around testing for cognition and, and, and these, you know, less quantitative endpoints. It's a challenge to really put a finger on what pr progress really means. And then you put that on a heterogeneous genetic background and other issues with aging that can confound results. And I can understand why this is so challenging. But could you give us a little bit more illumination on, on the recent situation with aducanumab, which is one of the drugs from bio, one of the monoclonals from Biogen? And you know, what exactly happened there where there was skepticism around its efficacy or its safety? And then how that maybe kind of poisoned the well for the next couple waves of therapeutics that are, have been given this kind of a fast-track approval. Okay, so Adihelm, which is the same drug as Aducanumab, it's, I don't, I mean, from my point of view, I have very different point of view than a lot of people that are in the Alzheimer's ecosystem. I don't think it's poisoned the well. Honestly, I, if people are open-minded, I think it will open up new horizons. It failed commercially, so I'm hoping the Kembi will be that drug, which is the second antibody that was approved by Biogen and Isai. If we studied this in the real world and allow patients to be followed for the same time frame where, again, I, I mentioned this earlier, but it takes around 10 years to see clinical outcome from the start of accumulation of these proteins. So I think allowing us to study in the real world, there's going to be a lot of academicians who will study these drugs in controlled clinical trials that will give additional data that you cannot have in just traditional drug development path. So I think it's going to open up opportunities for other modalities, other drugs that are in the pipeline for Alzheimer's. It will give us better understanding of the impact of these drugs in the real world evidence. And hopefully it will give us tools to how to test Alzheimer's disease within a controlled double-blind clinical trials. I think it's a good thing. I hope more people would see it as a good thing and really support a successful launch of Lakembi and successful understanding, better understanding for us on the impact of these treatment on Alzheimer's disease and how we can test Alzheimer's disease in a better way. Now, one other question that maybe I should have asked right off the bat 
is what is the biological normal role of beta amyloid? Is it, I mean, we're obviously synthesizing this thing as a, a gene that makes a protein. And you know, what is it? And is it just that it goes wrong somehow? Yeah, I think it's a pathway. Typically, that there is a pathology within the, the pathway. It's different for different patients, but there's an aggregation of these proteins. And when these proteins, there's two, two philosophies here. Some say that there is the degenerative process. So when the brain starts going through, I guess, the dying process or, and lose, loss of synapses and brain cells starts to degrade, or stop functioning as well, that we start seeing that the, the brain cells are not able to traffic and get rid of these proteins, so they accumulate. Then there's the other part of the community that says, well, that's actually the other way around. We start seeing an imbalance of these proteins, aggregation of A-beta plaques in the brain, and we ultimately see this leads to neurodegeneration. There's some people that say, neurodegeneration leads to A-beta plaque accumulation and the others, and there's the other side that says no, A-beta amyloid plaque aggregation leads to de degeneration. And we're not going to be able to understand this fully until we test this drug in the real world with longer period of time and have these registry trials in, which will lead to access to the treatment to better understand the exact biological role and pathological role of A-beta amyloid in Alzheimer's patients. Well, you said that, you know, we do the experiments and may allow access to these drugs, but right now there's not even reimbursement for screening with the, with the PET test. And so what are the costs of these things projected to be? And is this something that's covered by, by Medicare or is this something that it is, looks like insurance will cover? So CMS, they, it's a very unique thing that they did with these drugs that they said that we're only going to reimburse PET imaging and Adjuhelm and any other drugs that are within this class only within clinical trials or, or testing or registries, which I think still is a good thing. It's not like completely closed. And that's why Lily, sorry, Biogen and, and Isai, as well as Lily, are, are pursuing a full approval because CMS said, if you go through the accelerated approval, we're going to limit our reimbursement. But Biogen and Isai can still have a huge registry trial, you know, 30 plus people that go into the registry trial and follow the progression of patients that are on treatment for a long period of time to help, to help us better understand. Yes, access is not great, but we need to think. That's why I said at the beginning of the podcast, I would love to see more people thinking outside of the box and executing on strategies that are outside of the box. Having a huge registry trial for Lakembi could allow for more access and at the same time, better understanding because we're going to collect data in a more uniform and organized way in the real world. As well, I'm sure there's going to be more academic institutes and researchers that will be looking to test for the hypothesis and the impact of this drug alone or in combination with other modalities. Um, access is not perfect. Still, Isai and, and, and Biogen priced this at $26,000 a year. 
higher, it's lower than the previous pricing, still high, but I think there are ways that they can allow access. Well, it, it sounds, it, it still sounds pretty high. And it's been a point of discussion around a number of therapies that have come through biotech in the last six months. But how can legislation change this? And is there room under the you know, Inflation Reduction Act to potentially change the structure of how these types of therapies may be reimbursed? I think the biggest burden for Alzheimer's on, you know, Alzheimer's, the biggest burden is in, on the, in the CMS because of the nature of the population that it impacts. According to a study that SI and, and, and Biogen has done, it's that it costs the system $37,000 to take care of an Alzheimer's patient. I don't know if this includes the indirect costs, $26,000. I think they priced it at this high of a, and even with, with Eduhelm, I think they knew that they're going to have limited access with this treatment. And and we need capital to go into innovative organizations, back to the innovative organization to allow for additional drugs to go forward. I'm not sure if the Anti-Inflation Act will have an impact, on, at this point at least, on Lakembi and Adyuhel. Although there has been a lot of pushback from the industry as well, I, I do think that the Anti-Inflation Act outcome on our industry, it, at least initially, is very minimal. There has been a lot of reaction. I wish people read into the details, not just the headlines, because, you know, better management of pricing could allow to more access, right? If, if the drugs are more affordable, there could be higher access, meaning more people will get the treatment. And ultimately, you know, more consistent. So people will not, a lot of people stop taking their medications because of the expense that's on them. But there is more protection on patients in this new affordable and anti-inflation act bill that I think will be a good thing for the industry and for the patients. Well, you know, the access is one thing, but the public's willingness to access it is something else. And as you mentioned, you know, cost can be one of the issues. But we've seen such a big pushback against big pharma. You know, you look at COVID-19 and at least a very palpable presence, if not, you know, many people, a small but vocal cadre of folks who are speaking out against things, COVID-19 vaccines and agriculture and genetic engineering. And do you think that new therapies of biotechnology really even stand a chance for widespread public acceptance? Overall, I think COVID has had a positive impact on the industry because what we've seen is a whole industry coming together to promote innovation. And we had multiple vaccines that had helped to manage the pandemic and allowed us to go back to some sort of a new norm. Right, Kevin? And I do hope that people go beyond the headline and go beyond the just the general reaction and go into the details of things and they will see that there's a lot of great things that come out of our industries including therapies that help you know cure some type of cancers deliver vaccines that help give optionalities for people and you know hopefully alzheimer's is, is on the path for breakthrough we you know to be realistic none of the drugs that are approved to date are, are these breakthroughs, but with more approvals and more access and more understanding of the different type of diseases, I think there will be 
continued increase in acceptance and appreciation of the hard work of a lot of people in our industry. Well, that would be a really good place to end, a really good forward-thinking place to kind of put put it some punctuation. But I'd like you to take out your crystal ball for a second. And is there anything, or is there something that seems really promising on your air on your radar that really is exciting? I would say cell therapy. We're looking at a lot of new curative approaches and synthetic biology. The microbiome understanding is also another exciting area that we've been looking. And the third thing that is really, I think, going to be transformative for our industry is the overlap between the high tech, the traditional technology industry, alongside the life science and biotech, where we're going to see Tremendous innovation in clinical trial testing, in data processing, and I guess the blockchain of data, and and you know new ways that we can develop treatments or tools to help us lead a healthier life. Yeah, I only see it accelerating. I, I think I, as as these dominoes begin to fall, we'll see more fall, and it, it's the way that science is shaking out. I mean, ten years ago, we barely had. CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing, you know, it was a blip on the radar and now has revolutionized the way we do things. So the next couple of years are going to be really incredible. And I, I'm really excited that we took the time to talk about some of this. If people wanted to learn more about Propel Bio Partners or, or you, where could they find you online or maybe in social media? Yeah, I think like Propel Bio Partners, we have a website, propelbio.com. We're on LinkedIn as well. Me personally, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm very responsive to entrepreneurs and I'm on Twitter, very active. <laughs> but social media, if you type my name, I have a very unique name. You'll find me. And if you, if anyone wants any advice or to start the conversation, happy to. Yeah, I need some advice. Actually, what I need is a little bit of funding to put a revolutionary idea in order. <laughs> and it doesn't fit in, the, in any of the national funding programs very well. And it's really cool because it works like a charm, but I can't find support. So maybe we'll have to have a conversation with some, some exciting entrepreneur someday. But well, thank you very much, Lean Kawas. Thank you so much for your time. And we'll talk to you again after the next big breakthrough. Thank you so much, Kevin. And for everyone listening, thank you so much for joining us on the Talking Biotech Podcast by Calabra. Check out Calabra's web, website and products. And keep in mind that their products do help you do what you do a little bit easier. So this is the Talking Biotech Podcast by Calabra, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, Scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.